Happy Thanksgiving, hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Weekly Stuff Podcast with me, Jonathan Lack. And no Sean Chapman, because he isn't here today. It's just me. I just wanted to get you guys out something for Thanksgiving as a little thank you for listening this year. Uh, it has been a really fun year for the podcast. Um, there's been a little less of the weekly stuff than we've normally had because of all the work we've been doing on Japanimation Station. So if you actually add all that up, there's been more podcasts from us than I think in any other year we've ever been doing this. Uh, but yes, uh, just thank you for the year we've had. I'm sure Sean and I will talk more about all of that when we get to the end of the year. Uh, but I wanted to get something out there. So I thought, hey, I wrote this book that came out last month. It came out October 8th. Uh, it's called 200 Reviews. If you haven't heard about it, it contains, as the title suggests, uh, 200 reviews that have been written by me over the last <clears throat> 20 years of my life or so, maybe even longer, 2002 to, to now, 2023. So about 21 years of content in here. Um, Two-thirds of my life contained somewhere in these pages. Uh, obviously, it's not every review I've ever written. It's a small sliver of them. It's it's the best of the best I, th I thought would be fun to put out. And a bunch of, um, as we've described before, previously unpublished material or brand new material that was written just for this book. About uh, a little over a third of it is completely new. Um, so that's quite a few pages because this is a 760-page book. So as I said, it's a mix of reviews that I have published over the years at various outlets, some of which you can still find online, some of which you can't, which is another cool reason for this book to exist. Uh, and then a lot of unpublished material, a lot of brand new material. I'm very proud of it. I'm, I'm really happy the book is out there and that I can share it with people. And I thought, hey, an easy Thanksgiving thing to do would be for me to pick up one of my copies I have sitting here of this it is, I should say, a doorstop. You could really hurt someone with this book. Uh, it's very big. Uh, but I would pick up one of these big books, and I would just read a little bit from it. Because I already did the writing. All I have to do is read it out. That's pretty easy. So that's what I've done. I went on Twitter, and I asked uh, listeners if they wanted to request anything. I threw the table of contents out there, and I said, hey, I will read the first five. So here's what we got, and you're going to hear me reading all of these today in this little bonus mini episode. Um, kind of a, I don't know, little like audiobook excerpt. A full audiobook does not exist of this, and probably never will. I did a, I did a calculation just now of my timing based on how I read these five, and I read about a page every three minutes, and at 760 pages, that would be about 38 hours, and probably a little longer, uh, if I were actually doing everything and slowing down for some parts and speeding up for others. So let's say 40 hours long. Um, that would be, that would take a lot of time to record. I, I, uh, I would need someone to pay me a lot of money to do that. But we did a, a, an episode a couple weeks ago when this book came out where I read, I think, eight of the reviews in the book. And there's going to be another five today, so you can stitch those together as a little audiobook excerpt. But yeah, let's go through what we're going to hear today. Um, these were requested, like I said, by people on Twitter. Jeremy Quinn on Twitter requested Death Proof. And I did want to shout out, he not only wrote Death Proof, but he then provided a, a foot emoji, which if you know that movie and you know Quentin Tarantino uh, is, is very apt. It made me laugh, definitely. Uh, Ever Since a Gundam, Twitter user, requested Fast X. Or Fast 10. I'm not sure how you're supposed to say the title of the 10th Fast and Furious movie. You could say, well, it's the numeral X, or 10, which is written as an X, so you should say 10. But all the other Fast and Furious movies have Roman, or have, have normal Arabic numerals. They have, you know, just a 6 written as the way we write 6. They have 7 the same way, right? Uh, so if this is a, a Roman numeral now, X, it doesn't look like you should read it as 10. So I say it as Fast X. You can debate in the comments whether or not that's correct, but you will hear me read my review of that movie. And I should say, my reviews of all the Fast and Furious movies are in this book. Um, some of them, I really like that I was able to do this, are composites of multiple reviews that I had written of the films over the years. So I could kind of take the best pieces of, what did I write about Fast Five in 2011? What did I write about Fast Five in 2021? And I put them together and took the best of both and put them all into one review. Same with uh, Fast and Furious 6, Furious 7. Those are all composites. There's quite a few composites throughout the book. Um, they're very fun, and I'm glad that those exist. It felt like I was able to go back and do a uh, kind of a director's cut of my own reviews, and they're very fun, and I'm glad they're in here. Uh, I just opened the book to one. Uh, Inherent Vice has a composite. That is one of my favorite movies ever, and that is in here. But anyway, you'll hear me read about Fast X or Fast 10. 
Alex Moore requested my review of The Godfather 3, which I'm happy I got to read because it is one of the the negative reviews in this book. I had a rule writing this book or putting it together that there wouldn't be negative reviews in it. It would be positive reviews, except when it was part of a series. So if I have all the Fast and Furious movies in there, for instance, there's a couple of them I don't like. So those are negative reviews. But the series is in there because I do enjoy it, and it's it's positive on the whole. Same with The Godfather. Godfather 1 and 2, obviously, two of the greatest movies ever made. I had a piece on The Godfather from many years ago that is in here. I had never written a piece on 2 and 3, but I had some notes I'd written last time I watched them, and I put those together into a review. And by notes, I mean things I'd written for myself and things I'd written on Twitter and other social media. And I kind of aggregated them and, and put that into actual writing. And so the review of Godfather 3, which I think is a truly terrible movie, I think is a pretty punchy piece of writing. I, I've already read the reviews, uh, and I'm going to stitch them in here later. And I did have fun rereading that one for this little bonus podcast. So you're going to hear that. Uh, Bright Noah's number one fan. Good name. He requested Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Uh, that is that is in here, along with every other movie Hayao Miyazaki has directed, other than the one that is not quite out yet in America, The Boy and the Heron, or How Do You Live. I obviously did not have access to that movie before writing this book. But everything before them is in here. All of the films he has uh, directed, from Lupin Third, Castle of Cagliostro, all the way up to The Wind Rises, um, many of which were previously unpublished, including this piece on Nausicaa. I wrote this back in 2013 for a series of Blu-ray reviews for a... I don't fully remember the context, but it was a website I was kind of toying with putting together that would be kind of a Ghibli database. And I thought, well, one of the things I could do right at first is write about the movies, put together reviews of the the Blu-rays were coming out in Japan for the first time. I have all of these. It's probably the most expensive set of movies I own because I imported all these movies from Japan on Blu-ray before we had them on Blu-ray here. And I wrote Blu-ray reviews up and I was kind of banking them And then I don't think that project ever materialized. So one of the fun things about doing this book, 200 Reviews, was getting to dust off a lot of those. Because there are reviews of Castle of Cagliostro and Nausicaa and Porco Rosso. And uh, I think the Totoro review had already been published. But I think a Kiki's Delivery Service review is brand new. So there's a lot of them in here. Um, And I even went with some of the movies that he wrote but didn't direct, like Whisper of the Heart. Which I had written about extensively in my honors thesis and in a couple of other places, but hadn't kind of put a review together. So I I stitched some pieces from that thesis, from some other writing I've done on that film. So that's in here. But Nausicaa is one of those uh, unpublished from the vault pieces. And uh, I'm happy it's in here. And I, I read that for today. And then finally, True Life Dude on Twitter requested Twin Peaks The Return, which uh, the review in here is specifically of parts 17 and 18, which was the finale of that show. Although it's about the whole show as well a little bit. It was written on the night that the finale aired. And this is a funny piece because I have absolutely no memory of writing it. Uh, We did podcasts on every episode of Twin Peaks The Return as it aired back in 2017. And I know I can speak for Sean. It's some of our favorite podcasts we've ever done. And I remember all that vividly. I did not remember until I was going through material for this book that I had also written kind of in the heat of a moment of the moment, a piece on Twin Peaks, The Return. Reading it again tonight, uh, I'd read it when I put it in the book and then I, you know, reading it out loud tonight, I did start to remember writing it and why I did. And I think it was purely a I just need to process this somehow, and somehow at times how I process things is through writing. So that's why that exists. Um, but it's a very good piece. I'm actually very happy that it exists and that it's in there, because I do hold Twin Peaks The Return in very, very high regard. I think it is one of the great film projects of my lifetime, uh, if not the history of cinema. So I'm glad that is in here. So as I said, the five reviews that you're going to hear today, and I just, I'll just i put them in alphabetical order basically here. Death Proof. Fast X or Fast 10, Godfather Part 3, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and Twin Peaks The Return. The last one does have spoilers for Twin Peaks The Return if you've never seen it, but you should see it. Uh, But otherwise, uh, I think you are safe to go with everything else. Um, The Death Proof review might have mild spoilers, but I don't know why you would want to hear a review of Death Proof today if you haven't seen Death Proof. That'd be weird. Uh, But there you go. That's in there. 
and I think it's fun. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for a good 2023 so far. Uh, we'll wrap up the year later on the Weekly Stuff podcast. We will be back next week, I should say. We'll be back on our normal Monday time slot with a great big Doctor Who episode. We're going to review the new Doctor Who special that is airing on Saturday, uh, The Star Beast, which is the return of David Tennant and Catherine Tate. Sean is going to fill us in on the end of the Chris Chibnall era, which he has been working through due to his obsessive compulsions. I'm going to talk about I've been watching a bunch of Tom Baker stuff. We're going to have a Doctor Who extravaganza, and that's going to be our next episode. Japanimation Station continues apace. It's continuing next week with part two of the season, which is called um, When Christmas Came to Otaku Town, and it is about the melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya and Lucky Star, and it's five episodes on those two anime, and that's airing through Christmas Day. The final one is going to be airing on Christmas Day. Um, so a lot of really fun stuff to come from the podcast in the last couple weeks of this year. Uh, but I hope you enjoy this little Thanksgiving treat. If you need to get away from your family or, I don't know, Thanksgiving arguments or whatever, or you need something to put you to sleep, maybe my voice will do that. I would take that as a compliment, I guess. Uh, and you can use this podcast for that. But I'll go ahead and throw it back over to myself. I'm the only voice you're hearing today. And I'm going to read you some reviews from 200 Reviews, which is now available in paperback on Amazon, on Kindle on Amazon, or you can go over to our Ko-fi page, get a DRM-free PDF, an ebook, and all that good stuff. $10 for the ebook, $25 for the paperback. I hope you enjoy. Death Proof, 2007, director Quentin Tarantino. Originally posted to Letterboxd March 27th, 2023, based on notes written April 19th, 2021. I revisited this film recently, watching the full-length version for the first time, rather than the cut-down originally released as part of Grindhouse, the double feature Tarantino made with Robert Rodriguez, and have really come to think this is one of the most interesting things Quentin Tarantino has ever made. Where I've found most of his filmography progressively less interesting and substantive the older I get, this is one that has actually aged really well, and revealed more depth to itself over time. In a lot of ways, for better and or worse, Death Proof feels like the Tarantino film that flows most unfiltered from his id. There's something incredibly honest about it in how much it reveals about its own obsessions and ideas. Of all his genre experiments, this one comes the closest to feeling like the real deal. It has the rhythms, pace, and tone of an actual exploitation film down so pat, especially in the first half, that if you didn't know the actors, it could pass for an unearthed oddity. It's sleazy and leering and gross in all sorts of ways, but in ways that feel entirely in keeping with the genre exercise, and honestly kind of hypnotic in what a complete stylistic atmosphere it creates. It's slow and talky and deliberate, but always incredibly engaging. And then it really does give way to something very different in the second half, which is practically and intentionally a different film, in conversation with the first. I think the initial pairing with Rodriguez's more fun, but less substantive or adventurous film Planet Terror in Grindhouse kind of obscured that, because Death Proof is, in and of itself, its own double feature. You can even see this in how it's visually presented in its uncut standalone form. The first half is full of the Grindhouse scratches and print damage and 70s exploitation coloring, then it has a black and white reel, and then it just looks like a contemporary film from that point on. Here's a thought I don't quite know how to articulate. Watching it again, I think Death Proof is maybe the best Tarantino has ever done by women, both the specific actresses in the movie, but also in the complicated, dualistic way it presents women in its particular filmic context. The easy surface reading is that you spend the first half of the film watching one group of women get stalked and murdered, and the second watching a different group exert their own power over the killer, thus balancing the scales. I don't really think that's the movie's idea, though. In both halves, it's this constant push and pull between illustrating these groups of women with rich interior lives and interpersonal connections, the vast majority of the dialogue is women talking to one another, while simultaneously sexualizing and fetishizing them in various lenses. It's this sense of palpable give-and-take of perspective and autonomy going on within the body of the film, and the whole exploitation genre in general, because Tarantino's genre exercises are also always critical projects about those genres. 
who's looking, who's in control, and whose story is driving things is a constantly shifting dynamic. And that's where the real division between the two halves comes. Stuntman Mike thinks he's driving the story the whole time, that his gaze is the real power here. He's proven wrong in a very obvious way in the second half, as he tries to intrude on the private space of these women doing their own thing, telling their own story, and gets violently ejected from that space. But that dynamic is also there in the first half. He happens to succeed in his game in that opening stretch, but the film still spends a lot of time illustrating the space and the lives that are being intruded upon and interrupted. Even if Mike gets the last word, he's not as omnisciently powerful as his sneer suggests. That's why the lap dance scene, funny as it is when it goes missing in the shorter grindhouse cut, is actually pretty important in the full version. Mike is sure she's doing this for him, that he has this woman and her body under his control. But she's completely doing it for herself. He doesn't matter. And then you have the good old boy Texas cops at the hospital, who are 100% on to Mike's game, but are just too lazy to follow through. Mike's not a mastermind. He's just enabled by predatory patriarchal spaces that give him power to intrude on the lives of women. I even think this is his only movie where Tarantino actually does something critically interesting things with his omnipresent foot fetish. Having a foot be the center of the big slasher sequence, literally sliced off and removed as its own fetish object, is compellingly loaded. It's also just nice to go back to a time when every Tarantino movie wasn't this big event that both he and the entire film press hype as the biggest thing. I like the lower-key, shaggier, less polished scale of this. It feels more like Tarantino firing from the hip. The cast is so good. Kurt Russell, obviously, but it's just top-to-bottom great, with so much space for the actresses in particular to make a meal of this script. Rosario Dawson, Zoe Bell, Rose McGowan, Vanessa Ferlito, they're all amazing in this. The way Mike just folds, collapses immediately, as soon as the girls push back on him even a little, is so good. I love how Russell and Tarantino work together. Russell clearly has so much fun playing with and sometimes tearing down his own iconography. Mike pouring fireball on his gunshot wound and crying like a little kid at the playground is some of the funniest acting Russell has ever done, and maybe the most perfectly staged moment of comedy in Tarantino's filmography. And yes, the car stuff at the end is out of this world. Unbelievably good. The sheer raw clarity of it all, how Tarantino lets you see every inch of the reality of it, how fucking insane Zoe Bell is on the hood of that car, it's straight up some of the best filmmaking Tarantino's ever done. And the ending is perfect. Absolutely perfect. Any movie that can shoot right to credits, eject the audience out into the lobby with the force of a rocket right on its best and boldest moment, is a movie that knows what it's doing. In sum, Death Proof is shaggy and weird, but in interesting ways, and honestly one of Tarantino's most compellingly made, revealing, and intelligent movies. Definitely too many uses of the N-word for a movie written by a white guy, but that's Tarantino for you. He's never not been up his own ass, but with just how far up there he's gotten in his last few movies, I really miss films like Death Proof, where the indulgence feels both more engaged with the world and more fresh and inventive. Fast X, or Fast 10, I'm not sure which. 2023, director Louis Leterrier, originally published May 18th, 2023, for the Weekly Stuff Wordcast. You know what? Maybe there's some gas left in this tank after all. I wasn't sure after the last two entries in the Fast and Furious saga, 2017's The Fate of the Furious and 2021's F9, the two worst films in the franchise. The former had its moments, but with a dark and miserablest story that split Vin Diesel from the rest of the family right at the moment the franchise first had to craft a film from the ground up without his on-screen best buddy Paul Walker, it miscalibrated how grim the series could go before it became dull and off-putting. F9 inherited many of these problems, once again sending Dominic Toretto off on his own in a two-dour plot, but it floundered even harder because it felt like a movie being made by someone who was fundamentally unhappy to be making it. Justin Lin made the series the singularly silly, but deeply lovable, international success it is today, with his run of entries from Tokyo Drift through Fast and Furious 6, but with F9, any joy he once had smashing these characters and cars together felt like it was long gone. And it wasn't particularly surprising when he walked off the set of Fast X a week into production. 
Whether Diesel had simply become too demanding to work with or Lin just didn't have another one of these movies in him, both perfectly understandable and both probably true to varying degrees, a change had to be made. Fast X, eventually helmed by Louis Leterrier of Transporter fame, is not the series in its prime, even as it makes copious references to the most beloved entry, Fast Five. But it is a surprisingly solid return to form. While Lin's fingerprints are still all over the film, he co-wrote the screenplay and surely had most of the set pieces thoroughly mapped out, Leterrier does seem happy to be here, and there's a general energy to the finished film that was sorely lacking in the last two installments, an energy that can only be described as fun. Diesel glowers less and has some real human interactions with Dom's son, Little B, with Michelle Rodriguez's Letty, and a few others over the course of the adventure, while the supporting cast has a greater pep in their step, and the action feels invigorated by its physics-defying stupidity rather than weighed down by the labor of it all, as I felt watching F9. The film successfully recaptures at least some of the scale and insanity of the series' best entries, Fast Five and Furious Seven, if you're asking me, and while it has its fair share of issues by the time we're making it to the bonkers, go-for-broke cliffhanger ending, I was on board again. This is, at least in part, the series I fell in love with. The spark, which I feared completely extinguished this time two years ago, is still flickering. It certainly helps to have some new blood who seem genuinely thrilled to be here. Jason Momoa, one of the most infectiously fun actors to come along in recent memory, is chewing scenery and making a meal out of it as Dante, the latest in a long line of antagonists swearing revenge on the extended Toretto family, and if you're going to shamelessly do the Joker thing with your villain, the foe who is always and inexplicably five steps ahead at any given time, entertained by watching the heroes scramble through the maze he's constructed for them with an inhuman degree of foresight and resources... You need someone like Momoa who's going to throw himself into the project with gusto. That he does, and while those allergic to weapons-grade overacting should probably stay away, I'm not sure they were coming to the 10th Fast and Furious film in the first place. Momoa is fun, plain and simple, and while his enthusiasm is not enough on its own to get the series back on its feet, he offers a much-needed shot in the arm the film around him is able to build upon. As an aside, I have no idea where else to put. I need to get this off my chest. Momoa is playing the son of Fast Five villain Hernan Reyes, despite the Hawaiian Momoa looking absolutely nothing like the Portuguese Joaquin de Almeida. This, in fact, is a Fast franchise tradition. Vin Diesel, Jordana Brewster, and John Cena do not in any way look like siblings. Jason Statham is a full 20 years older than his on-screen sister Vanessa Kirby, and Fast X also gives us Brie Larson as the daughter of Kurt Russell's Mr. Nobody, which beggars all kinds of belief. Nobody who is meant to be a blood relation of anyone else in this series looks like they could possibly be related in the real world. At this point, I do appreciate their commitment to the bit. The rest of the cast is as large, reliable, and unwieldy as ever. The film has a truckload of returning characters, a surprising amount of new ones, all related naturally to characters from the past, and a lot of cameos. And the results are almost inevitably hit or miss. Michelle Rodriguez continues to be the unsung MVP of post-Paul Walker, Fast and Furious, and Letty actually gets some pretty fun material this time around, including a spotlight role in the first big first act action set piece, and is later paired off with Charlize Theron, who is having a lot more fun here than she was in her introduction two movies ago. The Tyrese Gibson ludicrous dynamic is undeniably tired at this point, but the two also have a chemistry you can't fake, and Natalie Emmanuel does a lot of heavy lifting keeping that side of the movie humming. Sung Kang is also great as ever, but apart from a big scene with Jason Statham, he doesn't have a ton to do this time around. John Cena gets paired with Dom's son, played by Leo Perry, in the most winning and heartfelt of the film's many subplots. Cena was inexplicably disallowed from having fun in F9, but he's having a blast here, bringing the same kind of humanity to bear as we saw in James Gunn's Peacemaker. And the aforementioned Brie Larson honestly seems like she's enjoying herself several more times more here than she ever has in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like Momoa, she's a shot of energy any franchise ten films deep would be lucky to have. The problem comes, as it often has in the latter-day Fast and Furious movies, with spreading the plot, such as it is, among such a massive ensemble. 
The film's first and third acts are relatively focused and move at a very good clip, but the second act is structured a lot like F6 and F9, with the cast broken up into smaller chunks and scattered to the winds. As in those films, it quickly becomes tiring, feeling less like one is viewing a cohesive movie than binge-watching a season of the Fast and Furious TV show. Some vignettes work better than others. Anytime we cut to Cena or Rodriguez, it's a treat. Cutting back to the ludicrous Tyrese side of things, we're risking a Pete Davison cameo that, if nothing else, gives viewers a perfect opportunity to go use the bathroom. I don't think it would be such an issue for me this time around if the macro structural editing were better. We cut much too quickly between stories, when letting sequences play out at length is almost always preferable, and some scenes are inexplicably too far apart from the moment they're reacting to. After the first act, Diesel is, cel- is separated from the main cast for most of the remaining runtime, for the third film in a row. His solo adventures are more entertaining than they were in films 8 or 9. He's got Momoa and Larson to bounce off of, and a new character played by Daniela Melchior, who he gets sappy with preaching about family, aka Dom's comfort zone, and his role in the climax is very fun. Still, one has to wonder... Do none of the main cast want to work with Vin Diesel anymore? Or does Dom simply not have a ready-made partner to bounce off of with Paul Walker's Brian out of the picture? We can only speculate about the former question, at least until the tell-all oral history is one day published. But the latter seems plausible. The series lost something very real when Walker died young and tragically, and Dom simply isn't as compelling a brooding solo hero as he was one half of an odd couple buddy duo. Fast X does a better job compensating for this absence than the other Walker-less films, but the absence is still inevitably felt. The action is very good this time around, which is to say it's ludicrous, it's profoundly implausible, and it bears a greater resemblance to Looney Tunes than it does the franchise's street racing origins. But those are all features, not bugs. The Justin Lin-directed action in F9 was theoretically cool, magnets, outer space, cars swinging on vines, but there was something about it that felt workmanlike and joyless to me, like the team going through the motions of fulfilling our expectations for crazy action mayhem, rather than actually having a screw loose and going bonkers with Universal's money. Fast X is closer to the real deal. The big first act set piece involves a giant spherical bomb rolling through the streets of Rome, with Dom and company having to use their cars to move it out of the path of destruction, and it all feels much more energized than anything in F9. The sequence's climax, in which Dom sets off a Rube Goldbergian set of pinball physics with a crane, made me cackle like a maniac and applaud. Much of the film's action continues in this vein. You can feel Justin Lin's hand in all of it. He may have left the production during the first week, but a lot of movie directing happens well before the cameras roll, and he obviously would have dreamt up most of this months ahead of time. But Louis Leterrier's execution is just a little bit sillier and looser, and at least in relation to F9, more joyous. It works. There's a gonzo lunacy to the action in this one that at times reminds me less of the earlier Fast and Furious movies than the current crop of mainland Chinese blockbusters, like the Wandering Earth films, where the goal isn't in any way physical plausibility or tactile photographic referentiality, but seeing how unbelievably big and ridiculous an image one can imagine and using the many digital tools of modern cinema to achieve it. The last big action beat in Fast X, involving a car, two massive gas tankers, a dam, and a whole lot of NOS, is absolutely one of those moments. It also leads to a good old-fashioned serial cliffhanger, where the lives of just about every named character hang in the balance, and there is no vaguely plausible way for any of them to survive. I can imagine this potentially annoying some viewers. The movie is not called Fast X Part 1, even though that's exactly the structure they're going for here, but I absolutely loved it. The series has never done a big cliffhanger before, but it's a move that fits the franchise like a glove. Fast and Furious is, at its heart, a crazy soap opera with big cars, big emotions, and big explosions. And the only thing it's been missing is a big to-be-continued moment. Here, we finally get one, with a cliffhanger that would be right at home in a 1966 Batman episode. It's fun, and it works. I'm excited to see how the characters get out of this ridiculous jam, and I'm looking forward to seeing what is, hopefully, the final installment, pull on all all the threads they've cast out here. By the end, Fast X has successfully reignited at least some of the enthusiasm I once had for this series, and they've set up a climactic chapter that's poised to feature every figure of note who's still around to get behind the wheel. 
color me surprised. This is not a perfect film or a great one, and if you want big Hollywood spectacle, Fast X is probably going to finish well behind John Wick 4, Mission Impossible 7, and Spider-Verse 2 in the 2023 franchise picture race. But after the series' last two installments, I wasn't sure if this one would even be able to put up a fight. And it does. Fun is all I've ever asked of these movies, and damn it, I had fun. The Godfather, Part 3, and Mario Puzo's The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, 1990 and 2020, director Francis Ford Coppola, new piece based on notes written April 16th through 18th, 2022. The Godfather Part 3 is a terrible movie, not just by the standards of the Godfather films that preceded it, but by any metric, and Francis Ford Coppola's subsequent tinkering has only made it worse. The film that arrived in theaters in 1990 is a mess. Its plot is needlessly convoluted and poor at communicating its own narrative or stakes, and the structure and pace have none of the elegance of the first film, let alone the mastery of the second. The original cut is shorter than either of the 70s films, but it feels far longer. Having only three returning actors from the earlier movies, Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, and Talia Shire, really hurts the sense this is a continuing story, with the absence of Robert Duvall in particular felt powerfully. Two of those three act fundamentally out of character. The idea that Connie does not believe Michael killed Fredo, or at least chooses not to acknowledge it and has instead stuck close to Michael ever since, is a deeply bizarre character choice given Connie was the member of the Corleone family who saw clearest through Michael's exterior to the monster underneath. And that has nothing on the character assassination of Kay, a woman who was so clear-eyed about Michael's evil that she aborted his baby rather than bring more of him into the world. Here she is reduced to a hopeless nostalgic, tearfully admitting, I'll always love you. And that instinct, to have characters like Kay and Connie give Michael additional chances when the character is so far past the possibility of forgiveness, is part three's ultimate Achilles heel. I know the film does not ultimately redeem Michael, it damns him, albeit through the death of his daughter, but the fatal flaw to me is that it even entertains the idea of redemption for so much of its runtime. Pacino does his absolute best to sell what Coppola gives him, but parts one and two were at their core about a man who methodically cordons off parts of his soul until he is so cold he can kill his own brother. A person who can do that is not someone who wants, or probably even thinks he needs, redemption. That's the point of the journey traced in those earlier films. There is no story to tell here, but even if there was, this certainly isn't it. The film tries on multiple occasions to recreate the magic of iconic scenes from the first two films, and each instance just underlines the width of the chasm separating these movies. Vito's assassination of Fenucci amidst the neighborhood festa is recreated here when Vincent kills Joey Zaza, and the whole thing is just sad, a once great director limply restaging the best scene of his entire career and coming up totally empty, almost as if this is a direct-to-video ripoff rather than an honest-to-God sequel. And that scene has nothing on the abject mess that is the opera climax in Rome, which is endlessly long and horribly paced, a stop-start mess where all the moving parts feel exhausting rather than exhilarating. It has none of the fluidity or gracefulness of the baptism climax from part one, going on and on and on with dozens of parallel cuts before any of the action actually goes down, and when the bullets start flying, the cast at this point is so thinned out that we don't know any of the characters doing the killing. Instead of Clemenza climbing the stairs to strangle Connie's abusive husband, Carlo, it's a procession of glorified extras crisscrossing, the viewer unable to keep any of it straight. All of which is to say, it says a lot about the depths of misogyny in film culture that Sophia is the Coppola who has somehow received the brunt of criticism and mockery in the years since Part 3 released. Fun fact, she didn't direct herself. The truth is that Papa Coppola's directing of actors throughout the movie is extremely poor. Shire, for instance, is a manifestly talented performer, but here she's saddled with a deadly combination of bad dialogue and worse direction, leading to unintentionally ridiculous moments like shouting, It's his diabetes! when Michael collapses. Even Pacino and Andy Garcia, the newcomer who fares best here, suffer from weird blocking in places. Take a look at the scene where Kay visits Michael in the hospital, and note that the eye lines are all off throughout. 
Moreover, and there's no non-awkward way to put this, it is genuinely jaw-dropping how All In Part 3 goes on cousin incest from the word go. The introduction to Michael's daughter Mary is poor Sofia Coppola being directed to seductively say the line, relatives always kiss, while flirting with Vincent, the Andy Garcia character. Every single scene that follows in Mary and Vincent's courtship, every single one, goes out of its way to remind the viewer that they are, indeed, first cousins. They only refer to each other as cousin, cuz, or the Italian cugina cugino, constantly reference our family, our fathers, our grandfather, and so on, without there ever being an intimation that any of this is wrong. It is presented as, at most, a comedic obstacle in an otherwise straight-faced, charming romance, one Michael requires Vincent to break off not because they are cousins, but because Vincent is going to take over the dangerous job of Godfather. In fact, Mary only dies at the end because she is standing in the way of the bullet while imploring her father to let her date her first cousin, implying that if Michael had just taken a blind eye to the whole thing, the final tragedy would never have struck. Here is an actual exchange of dialogue from The Godfather Part 3. Mary, I love my family. Michael, even your cousin Vincent? I really love him. He's your first cousin. Then I love him first. I don't know if those lines would belong better in a sitcom with a laugh track or in the opening to a porno, but it definitely feels out of place in a Godfather sequel. By the time Mary and Vincent are passionately kissing while exchanging explicitly incestuous declarations of love, I love you cuz, I love you too cuz, I am asking myself what the hell I am watching and wondering why it isn't behind an age verification screen. So yeah, The Godfather 3 has problems. They weren't rectified by Coppola's choice to add nine additional minutes to an already overlong movie for home video. This was the only version available from 1991 to 2020. And they definitely weren't solved by his so far final bit of tinkering, a 2020 director's cut produced for the 30th anniversary that rechristened the film as Deep Breath, Mario Puzo's The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. It is emphatically the worst version of an already troubled movie, a cut that does not and cannot fix any of the actual problems the movie had. What fiddling it does is frankly embarrassing. Most of the film is unchanged, same for some trimmed and rearranged scenes. Some of that streamlining is good, but most of it goes unnoticed. The big changes are to the opening and closing. The former is a decent idea poorly executed, the latter is laughably inept. For the opening, Coppola takes the scene where Michael negotiates to give the Vatican $500 million, which comes about 40 minutes into the theatrical cut, and moves it up to the very beginning. The intent is clear. It streamlines and clarifies the Vatican plot and echoes the structure of the first Godfather, with someone making a request of Don Corleone, Vito there, Michael here. It's a good idea in theory, but very awkward in execution. First, the scene was never shot to be the intro. This is a choice Coppola made 30 years after the fact, and the footage does not exist to make it feel like a natural starting point. The first scene of the original Godfather starts with a long, moody pullout shot for a reason, and Coppola lacks the coverage here to make a similar effect. Second, Coppola then keeps Michael's narration of his letter to his children, the introduction to the theatrical and 1991 cuts, made the second scene here. It's very whiplashy, because as narrated and, narrated and edited, this is clearly an introductory scene, now coming ten minutes in. It doesn't work. More importantly, if this change clarifies the plot, it sacrifices theme and atmosphere to get there. The earlier cuts of Godfather 3 open with shots of the lake house where Fredo was killed, now abandoned. It's haunting. From here, we get the narration of Michael's letter, and we then go to Michael getting the medal from the Vatican. This procession of scenes immediately establishes Michael's state of mind, that he is still stuck in that moment of killing Fredo, unable to move past it. It also establishes that all his charitable giving is his attempt to atone, a vital character dynamic completely lost in the coda cut. The original opening is better, as the start of its own movie, as a sequel, as characterization for Michael, as the beginning of this story. Perhaps if the film had been rewritten to accommodate this shift before filming in 1990, the idea the coda cut goes for could work. But you can't plaster it together in 2020. 
The ending, though, is where Coppola really goes off the rails. It starts out mostly the same, with Mary's death and Michael's wailing, but when we fade to the flashbacks, we only see images of Michael and Mary from earlier in the movie. The earlier cuts also show Michael's previous lovers, Apollonia and Kay, all the other good women he lost for his sins. As in the original, we then move forward in time to old Michael in Sicily, but here Coppola reverses the final two shots of the movie. In the original, we have a close-up on Michael's aged face, then a long shot of him slumping over in the distance. Here, we start with the long shot, but cut before he slumps over into the close-up, a reversal that plays very awkwardly if one does know the original. This isn't actually the worst part, though. From the close-up, Coppola fades to black. The musical cue is unchanged, though, so there is time left over from cutting the part where Michael slumps over dead. In that space, where the score continues, Coppola inserts these two lines of text. When the Sicilians wish you sentaani, it means for long life, and a Sicilian never forgets. Why? Why, Francis? Why? First, this is a rhetorical technique the Godfather films have never used before. There is on-screen text at the beginning of part two, but it is purely expository. Second, this is every bit as subtle as Coppola bursting through the screen Kool-Aid Man style screaming, Did you get it, guys? Did you get it? The original version isn't exactly subtle either, but it is clear and competent visual storytelling. An old Michael sits alone, lost in memories of all the women he got killed or pushed away, and finally slumps down dead in a long shot emphasizing the emptiness around him. It is good, clean filmmaking using cinematography and mise-en-scene to impart a message. The other is incompetent and amateurish, revealing that Coppola apparently thinks the problem with part three was that he didn't spell out clearly enough the point of his already excessively obvious movie. There are large swaths of part three where it already feels like Coppola has completely forgotten how to direct a movie, but tack another 30 years on top of that? Oof. These are not the choices of someone who should still have creative control of their past work. And look, at the end of the day, Coppola always gets a pass. He made Godfather 1, Godfather 2, The Conversation, and Apocalypse Now. That's enough to get into the Hall of Fame several times over, no matter what came after. But boy howdy do I thank God he hasn't decided to recut The Godfather Parts 1 and 2. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. 1984, director Hayao Miyazaki. Excerpt from a previously unpublished Blu-ray review written August 1st, 2013. It is impossible to overstate the importance of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, not only as a film, but as one of the single biggest influences on modern anime, and international perceptions of anime and contemporary Japanese cinema. It is a behemoth, a film whose legacy and reputation cast such a large, overwhelming shadow that it can actually be difficult to strip away the layers of fame and hype to remember that this is, simply put, one of the single greatest films ever made, animation or no. While Nausicaa is not Hayao Miyazaki's first film, as it is often erroneously said, that would be Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro, this was his first feature that stemmed entirely from his own imagination. It is based on his seminal manga of the same name, and what an imagination it is. Nausicaa simply bursts with invention, ingenuity, and detail at every turn, and with its distinctive singular art style, the film may be one of the all-time great cinematic examples of world-building. What makes the film a masterpiece, though, is that all this incredible design work operates in service of a powerfully emotional, environmental thematic undercurrent, one that seems increasingly prescient and hauntingly prophetic as time passes by. Nausicaa feels like a first film to me through and through, not because it is qualitatively lacking, but because the themes Miyazaki explores here about how humanity's violent socio-political interactions is mirrored in our equally toxic relationship with the environment, and how the innocence and perspective of a younger generation is key to finding ways to live in peace, would be presented with a calmer, leveler head later on, especially in Princess Mononoke, which revisits much of this thematic ground. Nausicaa feels to me a very angry film, one that is palpably bitter about humanity's capacity for violence, destruction, and ignorance. 
Unlike later Miyazaki films, bad people are painted much more broadly as bad people. And apart from Asbel, there is little redemption for characters who use brutality as a means to an end. The moral and human shades of gray that Miyazaki would so clearly master in subsequent films has yet to fully form, and the overall bleakness of Nausicaa, this is, to me at least, easily the darkest of the Miyazaki-directed Ghibli films, can make the film difficult to fully engage with on one's first or even second viewing. Yet I think the intertwined emotional and ideological state of the film, if arguably less refined, is an absolutely valuable piece of Miyazaki's overall identity as a filmmaker, and a starting point that is essential to experience when studying and enjoying his work. This is the place from which Miyazaki begins most of his major thematic explorations on film, and the palpable anger and sadness that lies underneath this story is a core part of the journey he would take, and still takes to this day, as a cinematic artist. And if Nausicaa is, as I said before, somewhat difficult to engage with at first glance because of this, the film only gets deeper, richer, and better the more one watches, because it is impossibly, impeccably layered, tremendously poignant and profound even amidst its anger, and ultimately capable of a measured, earned sense of optimism about the resilience of the human spirit. That notion is, of course, made manifest in the film's title character, Nausicaa, who for me is the single biggest factor in the film's success. Nausicaa is not only Miyazaki's single greatest protagonist, but perhaps his most effective and infectious character creation to date. From the moment she first arrives on screen, her personality, will pl- willpower, and presence all seem boundless, a testament both to Sumi Shimamoto's tremendous vocal performance and one of Miyazaki's very best visual character designs. Hair, clothes, mask, glider, face, every part of Nausicaa's image is iconic for good reason, and every time I see her, I find myself intoxicated by the effectiveness of the design and the strength of the character. For Nausicaa is an incredibly strong character, and that, more than her iconic image, may be the number one reason audiences around the world love her so much. Animated or live-action, woman or man, a princess or commoner, Nausicaa is simply one of the most proactive and determined protagonists in all of modern fiction, a figure who earns her title as hero by striving for it, constantly, throughout the film, with an energy that is almost inhuman, but completely understandable because of how vividly Miyazaki and Shimamoto bring her to life. As an example of this character's singular activeness, compare Nausicaa, a princess in her valley with her subjects always referring to her as such, to a Disney princess. In Disney animated films, the princess is everything, and yet she is simultaneously nothing, a character who tends to be passive, their position symbolic. Nausicaa, the Ghibli princess, and emblematic of most Ghibli protagonists, is the polar opposite. She is everything to the story and surrounding characters because she works tirelessly as a beacon of social, political, and personal hope. For her, princess is not a glamorous title. It is a position, a duty, a role of supreme responsibility, and she lives up to that role and constantly surpasses it by being hardworking to a fault and acting vigorously in the interest of her subjects and the world in which they live. The people of the Valley of the Wind, in turn, love her because she works so hard to earn that love and respect. In this way, Nausicaa is one of the single best portraits of leadership ever committed to film. One immediately understands why any of these people would give their lives for their young princess. She is a leader worth protecting, by any means necessary, not because of her bloodline or title, but because of who she is as a fellow human being. And that is where the optimism of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind truly lies that this character can exist in this utterly broken, endlessly abused world and maintain her own identity despite tremendous hardship, indicates Miyazaki, even in the midst of a clearly expressed anger about humanity's dark side, does see reason for hope. From these complex emotions, he made what I truly believe to be one of the greatest films of all time, a stunning, thrilling, thought-provoking, utterly compelling masterpiece that only grows more powerful, meaningful, and provocative with time. Twin Peaks, The Return, Parts 17 and 18, 2017, Director David Lynch. Originally published September 4th, 2017 for the Fade to Lack blog. First and foremost, the ending of Twin Peaks, The Return strikes me not as a strict narrative wrap-up, but as a meditative coda on the major themes and ideas of the series. Some of those ideas include, what does it mean to return? What if the world is emptier and quieter and stranger than you once found it? What if its existence does not make sense? 
This is Cooper's return to the world, or at least to a world, after his time as Dougie Jones, after the confrontation in Twin Peaks, after years in the Red Room and traversals in other dimensions. After all of this, here he is, with a fairly simple task, to find Laura Palmer and reunite her with her mother, and neither he nor the world seem completely stable. His personality and presence seem to vacillate between the good Cooper we know and love and the dark Cooper we know and fear. The world is mostly empty, punctuated by violence and coldness. Laura is not the shining beacon of hope and purity he or we might have expected, and the picture book ending he and we might have envisioned, where he shepherds Laura to her door and reunites her with her mother so they can be together again, not only does not happen, but seems so distant in the end as to never be possible. Cooper's last line, what year is it, is a question, a cliffhanger, but also a statement, one of displacement, of being adrift in time, in space, in life. His journey, his goal, to bring Laura Palmer back to life and, in so doing, restore a semblance of goodness to the world is, I think you could argue, a fool's errand. For as the previous 17 hours of The Return have taught us, and as many hours of the original Twin Peaks and Firewalk With Me instructed, the world is dark and messy and broken no matter what. A Laura who gets to grow up and be subjected to the ups and downs of adult life in this broken world is not the same Laura who we saw in high school. And the Laura we knew back then was, of course, never the picture-perfect figure painted in her saintly reputation. Even across time and space and multiple dimensions of existence, those scars still linger. They cannot be erased. And this Laura, this woman removed from all context of herself, still feels those wounds reopen in those final moments at her old house, hearing her rapist father assault her in her memory. There is ultimately only the scream, piercing, primal, existential. Perhaps Cooper meant to fashion a world in which that scream need never be vocalized. One of the lessons of Twin Peaks, I think, is that such a world can never exist. To return, perhaps to starting position, as Dark Cooper once said during a bizarre arm wrestling contest, to put the world right again and repair it all is impossible. Laura cannot overcome her horror. Cooper cannot find the way back. While alongside him, Diane cannot forget the face of the man who raped her, the same face as the man who loves her. One of the most important sequences not only of Part 18, not only of The Return, but of Lynch's entire career, I think. The sex scene, in which Cooper appears to revert to the visage of Dark Cooper, cold and unfeeling, and Diane rides him with tears in her eyes and anguish on her face, is a statement, more damning than can be put into words, about the duality of masculinity. A statement that masculinity can encompass the perfection of Special Agent Dale Cooper, a man of pure goodness and upstanding character, and the sheer darkness of Evil Cooper, a being of pure evil and ceaseless violence in itself at once. And it is a statement about the women who must be subjected to navigate a world where those two polarities, these opposite ends of the spectrum of masculinity, can indeed be represented on the same human face. It is no accident that Diane, and in turn the audience, has this revelation during sexual intercourse, a sight of masculinity's dark id, and one Lynch has explored time and again from Blue Velvet to Firewalk With Me to all across Twin Peaks The Return. Diane cannot ultimately return to being with Cooper, can never return to being in the world as she once was. The scars are still there. They are forever fresh. Even vanquished, the dark Dale Cooper who assaulted her is still reflected on the face of the good Dale Cooper she loves. What choice can she have but to leave? In all these ways, Part 18 does not conclude Twin Peaks in literal fashion, or even in a particularly narrative fashion, but on a purely emotional and thematic wavelength. It is an hour of atmospheres and free-floating ideas, the emptiness of an altered world, the anguish of Diane and the mystery of Cooper's identity, the tortured visage of an older, grown-up, perpetually troubled Laura Palmer, the scream that echoes through time and space, the long, dark, endless roads, a journey to nowhere that ends in disappointment and horror, the sense of displacement of a world that has moved on and of people left behind to navigate its empty strangeness. All of these are microcosms of themes explored throughout the prior 17 episodes and in different configurations throughout David Lynch's career. In these ways, Part 18 is the right conclusion to Twin Peaks, even if it is not the immediately satisfying or desired one. 
It is emotionally true to itself and to its themes, and that is all one can ultimately ask. It is Lynchian to the extreme, to the greatest and most profound degree, right until the bitter end. That said, I was struck that, although they aired together, parts 17 and 18 are indeed separate episodes, very much so in many ways. Stylistically, narratively, structurally, and especially tonally, they stand apart as individual artistic expressions. But they are also complementary in their many differences, and belong together not only as an ending to this series, but as a sort of Lynchian treatise on the very notion of endings. Part 17 is the ending we want. Part 18 is the ending we get. Part 17 is the climax. Part 18 is the coda. Part 17 is flashy, packed to the gills with stylistic flourishes, big reveals, and major moments of climax and confrontation. It features breathtaking visuals, such as a series of superimpositions, and puts characters together in configurations we have waited 16 hours to see. It is as satisfying as it is stunning, an ending that operates powerfully on the viewer on a practically chemical level. But then Part 18 twists and challenges a lot of that. In the extreme, one might even say it reveals Part 17 as something of a narrative Trojan horse. The Cooper who seemed so assertive and triumphant in Part 17 is confused and in many ways lost in Part 18. The narrative structure that all seemed to culminate so cleanly in Part 17 splinters and fragments itself in Part 18. And it does all of this with the utmost sense of intention. One of the great surprises of the return was just how highly structured it actually was. Experimental and baffling and consistently unique, yes, but also narratively rigorous in terms of setting up, following, and knocking down plot points in densely novelistic fashion. The series sets us up so that when it leaves much of this structure behind for Part 18, an hour that abandons much narrative continuity while maintaining all emotional and thematic continuity, we are made to ask some fundamental questions, not only about the story we just saw, but about the basic nature and fabric of storytelling. Surely, we think, Cooper and Laura must find what they are looking for. Surely Cooper's plan will come together. Surely, Sarah and Laura will have this reunion and something good will be put back together in this dark world. But none of that happens. None of that can happen. The return was not without its levity and Lynchian humor. The back half of Part 3, for instance, in the casino, is a straight-up comic masterpiece, and most of the material involving Dougie, Janie E., and Sonny Jim simply radiated warmth and humanity. But it was also a far bleaker vision of humanity than Lynch has ever given us, a story consciously consumed with considering the distance and harshness of time. There might be warmth and even joy throughout individual episodes, see Big Ed and Norma's romantic moment last week, but it was no accident that Lynch frequently punctuated these hours with dark vignettes at the roadhouse, or painted Twin Peaks as the town as a much harsher and more violent place than it was 25 years ago. Returning to anything is hard. Nostalgia and expectation do not lead us down storybook paths. Or take tone out of the equation entirely, and consider that a great chunk of the return was devoted to our lead character, stuck in something of a vegetative state, living out someone else's life while we all waited for him to wake up. The Dougie Jones material was the heart of this series in more ways than one. It was, I think, teaching us all along how to approach the eventual ending. For while it could be easy to grow frustrated with Dougie's Baroque antics in Las Vegas, tuning in each week for a character revival that never seemed to come, those who loved the Twin Peaks The Return the most, like myself, learned to quickly let go of such expectations. Perhaps Cooper would return. Perhaps he wouldn't. In this moment, we had Dougie, and we had the humor and cinematic creativity he brought with him, and we had Naomi Watts giving her greatest performance since Mulholland Drive, and we had a whole cast of characters, Bushnell Mullins, the Mitchum brothers, etc., animated by the presence of this strange vegetative man in their lives. You can view Dougie Jones as a 16-hour-long narrative stall if you want, or you can accept that the meaning was found in the journey and that once we stopped waiting for a return to happen, and simply lived in the moment, the world of Dougie Jones, and by extension of Twin Peaks itself, provided some of the best, warmest, most tonally diverse, and lived-in filmmaking to ever grace American television. And the people on that screen, touched by Dougie Jones' extraordinary life, found so much happiness along that journey. 
The most concrete conclusion in Part 18 is reserved for Janie E. and Sonny Jim, as their father, seemingly reanimated as a more whole, happy, and aware version of the man he had become while Cooper wore his skin, does indeed return for them, their faith in him rewarded. They all lived in the moment together, and now they get to keep on doing so. This is all a very long-winded way of arriving at the most fundamental notion I have about the conclusion of Twin Peaks, the notion of which I think the show itself expresses with beautiful clarity, that the ending was never the point, and that understanding and internalizing this is the entire point of the ending, for the characters on screen and the viewers gazing upon them. These last 13 weeks and 18 hours were, I feel quite confident saying, the greatest and most powerful season of television I have ever been fortunate enough to witness. In the return, David Lynch, Mark Frost, Kyle MacLachlan, and the ludicrously deep roster of talent both in front and behind the camera did nothing less than to blow the mediums of film and television apart and restructure both to their liking. The return was many things, slow and steady, lyrical and lilting, lucid and dreamlike, highly structured, and boldly experimental. It was, above all else, alive. Alive in ways few works of visual art, even great ones, can ever truly feel. It was an experience like none other, right up until the final moments, and it wrapped itself in a way that will linger in our hearts and minds far past the confines of these 18 televised hours. From the first scene to the final credits roll, I felt humbled to watch Twin Peaks The Return, in awe of the opportunity to be on the ground floor of something so artistically revolutionary, and it is an experience that will likely shape my outlook on television, film, and the increasingly gray area between them for the rest of my life. The curtain call has come. What a privilege it was to watch all that came before it.